0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Four Principles of the Path, recorded November 8th, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: There are four basic principles that govern a spiritual path, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And they govern any spiritual path as a whole, they govern any stage of a spiritual path, and they govern even every little moment of a practice in a spiritual path. And I've talked about them before in relation to other practices or other topics, but I don't think I've ever given a talk just about these principles themselves. So I thought I'd try to fill that gap this morning and talk about them. These principles flow organically out of each other, as we'll see. So if you start with one, uh, the, the others automatically arise by starting with the one. They just flow one after another. They are very organic, and in fact, they're not actually separate. In order to do any of them, you're really having to do the other ones together. But because our language, our speech is sequential and breaks things up, we have to talk this way. Uh, but just keep that in mind as a background. So let's start with the first principle, paying attention, pay attention. So what is actually attention? Attention is a very funny kind of thing, if we stop to think about it. We might say it's something like it's the power of consciousness to focus on a particular phenomena, any, any phenomena arising in any of our six sense field, so a touch phenomena. Uh, we can focus our attention on our hand, for instance. What, is that, what does that feel like? What's it touching? Uh, a sound, the sound of my voice, a sight, a smell, a taste, uh, and then phenomena that appear in our mental field, we might call them, thoughts, images, memories, uh, phenomena that sort of overlap emotions. They can have very much of a sensual quality, but they can also have a very subtle quality. So any any of these phenomena can capture our attention. Our, t- our attention can sort of go to that phenomena and pick it out. It's a little bit like, uh, if we wanted to use an analogy maybe, a light. And a, a large light that's illuminating a room and then it, it, we can also if we're on a stage we have a stage lights so we can also narrow it down and make it into a spotlight and so we can really uh, focus attention on one particular phenomena or it can be a little bit more general another analogy for this might be something like a wave arising out of an ocean if we think of awareness and consciousness as a kind of an ocean then attention sort of is uh, a wave of that arising and moving towards some object, some phenomena, and then it sort of recedes and then moves off towards something else. Sometimes we seem to be able to control attention. We, we make up our minds even to do something we're not particularly uh, enthusiastic about doing. Maybe it's paying your taxes at tax time, and so you have to take an afternoon out and <laughs> sit down and really do it. So you concentrate your attention on this task for a while. But oftentimes, uh, attention seems to be not in our control. So you might, uh, for instance, be trying to concentrate on doing your taxes, and you hear some tremendous crashing sound outside, just out in the street in front of your house. You'll have a very hard time keeping attention focused on those taxes. Usually, attention goes flying to that phenomenon, especially a startling and dramatic phenomenon that arises in consciousness. Now, notice attention here is something slightly different than thinking or judging or other things that come along. If you hear that crash, attention goes to that crash, and then thoughts arise about it and feelings arise about it and so forth. I say this because often, especially if you read uh, spiritual texts about things like meditation, they 'll talk about it in terms of mind training or training the mind and Our English word, mind, is a pretty loose, vague term. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean awareness. It can mean attention. Uh, It can also mean, uh, perhaps more commonly actually, is our thinking mind, our discursive mind that thinks. But if we want to be a little bit more precise, if we think about training attention here, we're not talking about training thoughts. We're just talking about training this power of awareness to focus and then to relax focusing. So. Why, then, is paying attention so important? And what are we supposed to be paying attention to here from a spiritual point of view? It's actually very simple. It boils down to something extraordinarily simple. Mystics claim that our true nature is simply that consciousness that is the true nature and the timeless ground of all phenomena. So we all share this nature, and we share it with absolutely any phenomena that's arising. Trees, rocks, stones, houses, buildings, uh, feelings, thoughts, beautiful things, ugly things, sweet things, sour things. Everything has this as its fundamental nature. And this consciousness is uh, eternal, is timeless. It was never born, it never dies. It's never ultimately affected by anything that arises in it. It cannot be burned, it cannot be cut, it cannot be harmed or injured in any way. So if we actually knew that, if we realized that, You can see how that would alleviate our suffering, our worries, our fears, and our anxieties, and so forth. But then mystics say, the problem is we are ignorant of this. We don't know who we truly are, our true nature. We are ignorant, and we can take that as a verb. We literally and habitually ignore our true nature. So it's right there. It's not uh, someplace off in the heavens or in some, only in some higher state of consciousness or something like that. It's always our true nature, always present, no matter what phenomena is arising and passing away, no matter how confused, how, uh, how much pain we have. It's always there, but we ignore it. We ignore it, and because we ignore it, we then fall under a delusion. We begin to identify with and think that we are a particular set of <laughs> finite phenomena arising in this infinite consciousness. So different people have a different set of phenomena they identify as themselves. It can vary quite a bit from culture to culture even. <laughs> But generally, they're things like body, we feel we're the body, Uh, we feel we're our thoughts, our memories, emotions, those sorts of things. And these are finite phenomena, and they're impermanent phenomena. And we believe that that is what we are because we ignore who we truly are. Now, this is what the mystics claim. This is what the mystics claim to have realized, not that they sat and figured this out, some sort of intellectual theory, a direct perception of this, a direct recognition, realization of this. And that's why this truth cannot be communicated in words. I can talk about it, but the truth is in the realization. The proof is in the tasting. So mystics always say, well, it's not a question of whether you believe me or not. <clears throat> Maybe it's important as a first step. I mean, if you don't believe anything I'm saying, you, uh, you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't try any of the practices, you wouldn't be interested in this at all. But that's not enough, just that first step. How are you going to find out for yourself whether this is true? So, what mystics say is basically, we have to stop ignoring that consciousness that is always here, and we have to start paying attention to it. Now, there's an added little trick here, because since our ignorance of it results from attention always being focused on phenomena... We, in a certain sense, have to learn to ignore the phenomena in order to focus the attention on the consciousness itself. Is everybody following what I'm saying here? But it's this, it's this simple. If you simply pay attention to the reality, you yourself will see, oh, of course, that's who I am. That's what everything is. That's all that is required. Nothing else is required. So let's just try this for a few minutes. Fred's smiling there because I. (laughs) Let's just sit quietly. Don't even get in a meditative posture. If you want to close your eyes for this one, I will ring the gong. And just ignore all phenomena and turn the attention inwardly. That's kind of metaphorical. But we can think of it as what is below all this phenomena? What is su- the ground of all this phenomena, the support of all this phenomena? So you you're not letting attention be captivated by phenomena. you're just looking at the naked, pure awareness that is always present, present right now. okay? With just a few minutes here we'll try this. If you want to close your eyes for this one go ahead.
0: If you would like to follow our format, turn off your tape player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows.
1: Your experience. Is anybody able to just have attention focused just on consciousness and ignore everything else? Yes.
0: When my eyes were closed, I, there was nothing. It was easy to know that the nothingness, and even hearing kids' voices was just like sound spikes in nothingness, and. Well, then, when I opened my eyes, everything, nothing became everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of interesting.
0: But, but, yeah, we—I I don't know. But then, then you start focusing on the things in the visual field, and then they be, get the the attention, and that's now that that has my attention. That's what becomes something.
1: But in that nothing, was there a recognition that this is who you are?
0: I didn't get that far.
1: (laughs) One of the things about this is to be there long enough to recognize what's going on. And that's different for different people. Some people, the recognition is instantaneous. Some people not. But this word we use, recognize, to describe enlightenment or realize, is a well-chosen word because it's very much like meeting somebody that you haven't seen for a while and you can be standing right in front of them and you don't recognize them for a moment, you know you're looking right at them but, and then you go, oh, oh, Sheila, that's right I remember you, you know, from Los Angeles or something do you know what I mean? so, well, yeah. it's, it's hanging out there until this recognition occurs yes
0: I'm, I have had this a lot but it's, it's what I call a conscious incompetence I could see that everything there was not it. And I could feel the the layers of kind of dullness and the randomized thoughts ping-ponging around and stuff. And I got that that is not me, that there is something generating that, that that isn't real phenomenon. And I intuit that there's something under there. So it's sort of the level of, I'm not going to be chasing around after these thoughts like they're real anymore, but yet I'm not standing in what's underneath it. And I I can understand and experience that, and nothing within this effect is going to get me there. It's sort of a symptom. So it sort of feels like conscious incompetence, and I have a a higher awareness of how I'm not that.
1: Very good. And of course you intuit it. Because we actually all know this. That consciousness knows what it is, who it is, from the beginning. It's never lost track of it. It's a funny paradoxical situation, how we could be that and lose track, whereas consciousness never does. If that enlightenment, if that gnosis was not present at all times, we wouldn't be aware of anything. I mean, there would be no awareness of anything. It is the nature of awareness to be aware. And that's really all enlightenment or gnosis is so your intuition is dead right and you've already started to realize other things well i'm never going to realize this through chasing phenomena uh because the answer is not in phenomena we're going to get more to that a little bit later so i'm going to postpone commenting on that who else had a, an experience with this
0: well you know i, I what i notice is that uh when, when I put attention on phenomena of any way, I'm making it into an object. When I try to do that with awareness, there's no way you can make awareness into an object. It just, it's sort of, and, and you say the idea is to recognize, and I don't know what you mean by recognize, but to me, recognize involves making something an object, so I don't think I can ever recognize that.
1: Again, you see, you're way ahead of us. I'm going to comment on that later when we get to it. But you see the difficulty, at least here, of uh, trying to have attention focus on awareness itself without being distracted by phenomena. Does everybody at least get that from our little experiment? I see lots of heads nodding up and down. Very difficult. Very difficult. So... To say, simply, pay attention to consciousness itself is much easier said than done, as your own experience convinces you of anybody who tries it. So, why should this be the case? Why is it so difficult to keep our attention still to begin with, but then to focus it on this awareness itself? In the East, they have a wonderful little analogy that attention is like a monkey. They call it monkey mind. And the idea is a monkey is always grabbing onto one branch and will let go of this branch only if it has another branch to grab onto and grab onto and grab onto. And so it's always moving, always grabbing something. Moving, moving, moving. And if we just watch our minds a little bit, we can see how attention is just always moving around. It really stays still. It rarely stays still. <clears throat> is that just our own experience? See, this is what I'm saying. This, this is nothing mystical at this point or magical. That actually, what we're doing is paying attention to our own experience. We tried to pay attention to consciousness itself, and now we're saying, well, that was not so easy, but let's pay attention to what does happen. The first thing we learn, however, is if we are ever going to have this realization, it's going to take a little commitment here. We're not going to just sit down and do it, usually, for most people, for 99.9% of the people. You just tried it. No big realization. So this takes a little commitment, this trying to pay attention to consciousness itself. There have been cases uh, reported where someone has uh, had a, I mean, just an instant realization like this, I think, the probably the most sudden case that I know of is Hui Ning. He was the founder of Zen Buddhism. And as legend goes, he was an illiterate woodcutter, and he happened to be in the marketplace. uh, And he heard a monk reciting the Prajnaparamita Sutra, I believe it was. Emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is not other than emptiness. And his mind just opened up. Lucky Wei Ning. <laughs> we don't know, however. By the way, you see what state his mind was in. Was in. For all we know, he, his mind was had for other reasons in his life had come to just uh, a, such a, a point of intensity that nothing was arising when he heard that. It just was a, a direct pointing, and so he realized. So. One of the other things we can realize, once we realize this is going to take a little bit of a commitment here, is we also realize this is going to take a little bit of a training of attention, of trying to calm this monkey mind down a little bit, get this monkey mind to stay still for at least short periods of time. And this is how and why meditation techniques arise in all the great traditions, Everybody notices the same thing. And they particularly notice it about the distracting quality of thought. It's actually not too hard to be able to uh, ignore the children's voices. as See them as what you described, just spikes. Nice description. But our own thoughts are very captivating, very seductive. So we're sitting there, and they're so seductive because... They can even be about meditation. You can be sitting there and saying, Oh, this is a wonderful meditation. Yes, the mind is really getting calm now. Yes, I'm about to be realized. Well, the attention's all wrapped up in the thought. And, and then you can suddenly realize, Oh my gosh, that's all thought. So, thought is very seductive here, particularly, but other, other phenomena as well. Emotions, especially if we are in some period of emotional turmoil, it's very hard to concentrate the mind. And if you're going to try to train attention here to be still, this also is going to require a commitment. It can't be done in just one day. And the kind of meditation we practiced this morning of just taking the breath as an object to focus on, and when the mind, when attention is distracted, gently but firmly bringing it back, is the same principle you'll find in all mystical traditions. They may not use the breath, they may use a mantra or a Jesus prayer or a zikr. It's called uh, in uh, Islam, a remembrance of God. Same thing. Doesn't matter what the object is at this stage. It may matter to you personally. You may have a more of a uh, uh, a pull to concentrate on a divine name that means something to you personally. But uh, objectively, it doesn't matter. It's simply a way of training attention. And if you do this practice. Over a period of time, if you're really committed to it, you will find the mind on its own learns to stay still on some phenomena, some object, for greater and greater periods of time. It doesn't mean thoughts won't arise or other phenomena won't arise, but it means then attention is not being pulled off that object and chasing after the other phenomena arise. You're learning to ignore that phenomena and then just keep attention steadily focused on one object. Even so, uh, we still have an object, we're using an object to train attention, so we're not really yet ready to focus on uh, our attention on consciousness itself. This is a little bit like uh, training wheels on a child's bike, you know, you put the training wheels on so that they can get the feel of what it's like to ride the bike, and eventually you take the training wheels off, and eventually meditation deepens into a kind of meditation where there are no objects to meditate on. But even so, in the process, one of the things that most people notice when they do undertake a meditation practice is, even if the mind can settle down for a while in meditation, the minute you get up off your pillow or leave your chair and enter into the hustle and bustle of daily life, right away all these phenomena arise, and again, attention is distracted, pulled here, pulled there, called there, and so forth. So, then we might ask the question... Why is phenomena so uh, distracting? Since we haven't yet learned to really pay attention to consciousness itself, in this process, we are learning something more about phenomena. We are raising questions about phenomena, and so we're going to start to pay attention to phenomena themselves. What is it about phenomena that is enslaved attention so much? Why is our attention so subject to this tyranny of? stuff arising? It's an interesting question. And anybody spend a little time in meditation, if you get interested in the way your mind works, that question may uh, occur to you. Why is it so frustrating? Why can't I just put my attention on consciousness itself? So you can then conduct an inquiry about this. And mystics have, over centuries, thousands of years, and so I'm sort of giving you the the uh, distilled, crystallized results of their inquiry, but you test it out for yourself. And here's what you can discover. First of all, you'll notice that under this delusion that we are some finite uh, a set of finite phenomena arising in consciousness, then whatever phenomena does arise immediately falls into one of two categories. It's either external or internal. So some phenomena arise, visual phenomena and so forth, and they seem to be out there, separate from us in here. Sounds, the children playing in the park, smells, tastes. Some of them get a little uh, ambiguous when you really get down to examining where is the taste. Is it in me, or is it out in the, in the fruit, let's say, tasting an apple? On our last retreat, we had some uh, interesting times experimenting with this. But generally speaking, we go through life and phenomena either out there or they're in here. Thoughts are in here, quite definitely. Emotions, they are in here, right? Judgments, memories, all that stuff is in here, and the rest of the phenomena is out there. So when a phenomena arises, the first thing that happens is And this happens at a very subtle, almost unconscious level. It's identified as me or not me, internal or external. Lots of phenomena arise that we don't care too much about. It doesn't necessarily attract our attention, although in every moment there's usually something that is arising that is attracting our attention in one way. And if it's an external phenomena, if we pay attention to how attention works, we will see there's an external phenomenon arises, especially as a rather dramatic one, something that gets our attention, as we say. Attention flows out like that wave or like that light suddenly goes to that. And then what happens? The thinking mind, the thought, identifies it. Oh, children in the park. Right? Or... Let's go back to the example of the car crash. If you were sitting there trying to do your taxes and you hear this tremendous crash, ripping metal sound, for a moment you might not know what it is. And in those situations, sometimes you can see very clearly there's a moment of, what was that? Oh, must have been a car crash. The thought will be quite prominent, right? So the external phenomena immediately, once it's identified entrains a whole bunch of internal phenomena rising, to thought. Then, a judgment. Is it good or bad? For me. Always a reference here to me, you see. We don't have any other way of making a judgment under these circumstances. Is it desirable and pleasant and something I'll like? Or is it something icky and unpleasant, undesirable, something I won't like? So a car crash will generally get you running to the window to see what happened. Generally because there's the fear that maybe something terrible did happen. Maybe somebody slammed into your car parked on the street. (laughs) Or maybe somebody's really injured and we don't usually like to face that. You know, oh my God, I'm going to have to go out there and there's going to be blood and guts all over the place and oh. But we notice that this, the external phenomena has brought first a thought, identifies it, what it is, then a judgment, will I like it or will I won't? And then this creates a feeling, an emotion, then if I will like it, then I'll desire it. If I won't like it, I'll be repelled by it. And then finally, an action. We actually move to grasp onto or possess, or get what we do like, and move away, push away, avoid what it is that we've already judged and that we won't like, and that feeling of repulsion has arisen. So we see a rather mechanical process happening here. And again, if you pay attention, really pay attention, in your everyday life, you can sort of get to an objective view of this internal and external Uh, process going on. It's really a a self-centered, conditioned pattern of response. And it's about as conditioned mechanical as a computer. You know, you can program a computer to respond to certain ways. And it's very interesting to pay attention to that and begin to observe that, and you see how conditioned your life really is. This is what is meant by karma, by the way, in the Eastern traditions. People have some idea that karma is some sort of mysterious law out there, and uh, it's part of some sort of theological concept. It can be talked about that way. But the, the notion of karma arose from mystics looking carefully at their own lives, how this works. And as we proceed along this, We get more and more conditioned if we don't do anything about it. So then we begin to understand, well, if we really want to free our attention, it's not just really a matter of training it in meditation to stay on one object. We have to start breaking down this whole conditioned pattern of response. We have to start finding ways to interrupt it. Attention is literally captivatedness. It moves around according to the program that's been written. So this opens up a whole new area of spiritual practice. What is the principle, the operative principle in this deconditioning process? It's called detachment. And again, you read through the mystical literature of any of the great traditions, and you will find this stressed over and over and over again, the importance of detachment. And detachment is a very misunderstood word, as it, as it uh, is spoken in English, in any case, because it carries with it some sense of coldness, aloofness. <coughs> and that is not what detachment means. <coughs> a, a closer uh, word is to let go or let things be. It means something in relation to this conditioned process. Instead of grasping and pushing things away, it's, uh, it means simply allowing them to arise and pass away in consciousness without the grasping, and without the pushing away. That's really what detachment means here. So in this process, we start with the grossest things. You notice this conditioning has unfolded and to the point where you are about to go try to grasp onto something and detachment comes in and says, well, I'm not, Instead of just automatically trying to grasp it, let me just let it go. Or behind that, a feeling arises, even before there's a, an outward movement for grasping. Desire arises. Instead of automatically allowing the desire to motivate some action, you, it's not about repressing or suppressing desire at all. It's about letting the desire arise and pass away. And beyond that, it's about watching the judgment arise. Oh, this is desirable or this isn't desirable. It's not about repressing the judgment. You notice your mind creates that judgment. Okay, so the judgment arises and pass away. This is what detachment is, allowing all these phenomena to happen naturally, but in, allowing them pass, rise and pass away, rather than have them de- predetermine how you're going to end up behaving. That's what detachment's really all about. If we're going to practice detachment, then we have to cultivate a broader form of attention, and that's mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. Witnessing, it's called, in the Hindu tradition. It's the ability to stand back, at least with a portion of our attention, our awareness, and watch these patterns as they unfold in our daily lives. And that is the place to watch them, because there won't be much unfolding when you're sitting on your pillow in a nice quiet meditation room. That's a good place to begin to watch this. You can watch it in microcosm, so to speak, you know. A wonderful, wonderful exercise sometimes when you're meditating, uh, if you happen to, or you can even ask somebody to help you with this, but if you happen to hear two people in the next room talking about you, see if you can keep your attention on your breath or your object.
0: <laughs> when
1: we begin to develop mindfulness, which comes out of our meditation practice. It's, it's carrying this ability for at least part of attention to be still, to be free of this conditioning. Into our everyday lives, we begin to observe how this conditioning works. And then we also begin to observe uh, some of the uh, true nature of the phenomena that attracts us so much. And one of the most important things to observe to begin with is that it's all impermanent. It's all impermanent. These external phenomena that arise, that have such either attract, attraction or repulsion quality about them, aren't all that substantial. And in many ways, we overreact and you can see this down from a, 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 to a little thing like i don't know if you like hot fudge sundays i like hot fudge sundays you get a, a, a urgent desire for hot fudge sunday a memory pops up oh that is good that's desirable ooh that desire arises and then next thing you know you're in your car driving down to baskin robbins and then you eat the hot fudge sunday nothing wrong with this by the way just do this but do it with mindfulness and watch how long that pleasure actually lasted. and then you begin to get a sense of how your life is always chasing after fleeting pleasures because they're all impermanent they don't last and then that in itself weakens our attachments to things it just weakens them because they no longer seem so important as we really experientially become aware of how impermanent all these little pleasures that we're chasing all the time really are. So that in itself frees up attention, so to speak. It's just not all that interested anymore. It's not about never having a hot fudge Sunday. I have I love hot fudge Sundays and I have them once in a while, especially if I happen to be going by a Baskin Robin. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not about that it's about observing and it's about observing and then through the paying attention this whole conditioning and this attachment will naturally weaken if you're really observing you mentioned you have through observing you see that you're never going to get enlightenment through engaging in all this phenomena so the phenomena is less interesting interesting to you presumably when you're meditating anyway in the beginning of a meditation practice, we're often very interested in our thoughts. We're, we're always very interested in our thoughts because they're our thoughts. We're often so interested in our thoughts, we don't want to hear about anybody else's thoughts. But if you do meditation for a while, believe me, you'll start to get bored with your own mind. It's kind of a turning point in a meditation practice. You hear that chatter on and on and on again about everything, and you says, shut up. It's like a TV you can't turn off. Your whole attitude just turns around simply by paying attention to it. Does everybody follow what I'm talking about? <laughs> Sometimes, just as a little digression, you may want to take up an ascetic practice of denying yourself hot fudge Sundays for a while. It's no virtue in not having hot fudge Sundays. The virtue is if you don't think you're attached to something, one good way to check it out is give it up for a while. That'll bring out the attachment. Then you can observe it. This is the point of ascetic practices on a spiritual path. And that is really the only point of ascetic practices. And they are only practices. They are only temporary devices, all, what, again, to free attention. Just to free attention. You see, we started this whole thing just simply trying to pay attention to awareness. And this whole, uh, all these practices are blossoming out of that. Uh, if you pay attention to internal processes, your own thoughts, emotions, desires, all that stuff arising, you'll see they're equally impermanent. And this will weaken your identification with them. You see, well, am I really my thoughts? I mean, after all, my thoughts come and go. I mean, rapidly. Which thought am I here? And then, over time, your thoughts change about things. So which one were you? And... (laughs) your emotions you know some days we're up and flying high and some days we're down the dumps and uh sometimes we're sad sometimes we're happy so which emotion are you if you're your emotions and actually by cultivating this mindfulness you can it's really like watching a kind of a movie for a while witnessing you watch emotions arise and pass away and and through that process again that process itself creates this disidentification. It starts to delink link the sense that I am these emotions, I am these thoughts. Especially if you try to control them. One of the things that causes so much suffering, and particularly when it comes to emotions, we're always trying to control our emotions. We're trying to get rid of the sad ones, the bad ones, and, and have the good ones only. And it cannot be done. And so we suffer... Not only do we suffer from the <laughs> sad, bad emotions, we suffer from the frustration of not being able to control our emotions. Well, they aren't yours to control. That's why you can't do it. There's no big secret to that. But if you if you can stand back and see they're not mine, they lose their intensity. I shouldn't say their intensity. It's not like mm-hmm. they become, you know, I don't know, sort of weak or vague. They lose that power to uh, to trap us in the identification with them. They can still be very tense, intense. But then they become uh, not only bearable, but actually they can become interesting. We have, through mindfulness, you, one way to put it is you develop that spaciousness of awareness that allows them, even very strong ones, to arise. Oh, yes, okay, so here comes tremendous anger. All right, well, I'm not, It's not going to overwhelm me. It's not me to begin with, and it's not going to overwhelm me. And I don't have to be conditioned to just strike out automatically. This is part of what detachment is, detachment from your emotions. So I don't have to be so afraid of it. When we're totally conditioned, we're, a lot of us are very afraid of anger because we're afraid that we won't be able to control ourselves. So part of deconditioning means, oh, you don't have to be so afraid of your desires, your aversions, your emotions, because you don't have to act on them anymore. One of the best ways to cultivate this mindfulness in everyday life is through keeping moral precepts, and all mystical traditions have moral precepts they recommend people keep, and uh, they have a slight, a slightly different slant on them, however, than in most uh, exoteric forms of religion where this is the word of God come down and you have to obey it, otherwise you're you know, going to get bad points against you and you're going go to go to hell when you die or whatever. You're going to be punished in some way, like uh, a father laying down the rules in the household. There's a certain uh, wisdom to that in, in the terms of society, but that is not why mystics practice moral precepts. By practicing moral precepts, you're actually checking this conditioned behavior. And what you're checking specifically is that behavior that's conditioned by this self-centeredness. So when you decide, for instance, to uh, take a precept of not lying, it's an experiment. You say, what would happen if I cut lying out of my life? And just doing that, making that resolve, focuses attention on your daily life. And that's all you have to do. You have to make this resolve. You have to be committed to this, to practicing it. So it's a good idea to remind yourself every day. I'm not going to lie today. And then you're going along and you find yourself telling a little white lie, let's say. And then instead of just being conditioned by that, that attention is now focused on what you're doing from a different perspective. And You say, well, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And usually you'll find that it's to enhance or protect this sense of self in there. And again, you see the conditioning, how that selfish conditioning prompts your behavior. And when you can see that, then you can drop it. You can say, well, supposing I don't lie, try to inspire. What would happen if I just told the truth? So the next time your friend calls you up that you don't want to have lunch with on Friday, you say, you know... (laughs) No, I don't really want to have lunch with you Friday. I've got other things to do maybe or whatever the truth is. Or maybe there's a, you've been avoiding this person and you say, you know, yes, let, we're not going to have lunch Friday, but we should get together because there's some things I want to talk to you about because I have been avoiding you because I didn't want to deal with it. And again, you, you see what's going on here is you're, you're being freed to have other options than just to have business as usual. It's not like there's some new strategy to do here. It's the freedom that's important. And in that freedom, you discover a kind of spontaneity. And you, and the more you do this, the more you interrupt that self-centered, conditioned pattern of responses, and the more you can see that, well, this is all impermanent anyway. It really isn't me. And all these things that I've been spending my life desperately trying to get or avoid are themselves all impermanent the more attention itself just starts to relax. It starts to open up. It's not so enslaved in this pattern. It's not so enslaved by phenomena anymore. And then something very interesting happens. And this brings us to the next fourth principle, and that is surrender. And surrender has several meanings here. The first meaning is part of detachment. Detachment is when you... Uh, let go of the attachment, and you give up the attachment. That is the surrender. So, they're really detachment and surrender are sort of two ways about talking about the same thing. They're flip sides of the same coin. So, if you're if you're practicing detachment, you're also just practicing surrender. You're you're letting just letting things go. You're not insisting that your will be done, to put it in Christian terms so forth. You're allowing the universe to unfold naturally the way it does. And this creates the sense of freedom and then attention relaxes. It's not Always so uh, focused on uh, on every—it's not so enslaved by every external phenomenon that comes up. It's not so intensely uh, focused on the internal phenomena and worried about it. And it just starts to start to open up, and then something very interesting happens. Not something you can make happen by any other way, but you start to get glimpses of this underlying reality, just spontaneously flashing through. So you may be in meditation, suddenly you have experiences of bliss or love or compassion or just not necessarily in meditation, just walk around your daily life. You, you learn to let go, you learn to surrender a little bit, you learn to uh, not look at the whole world just in, in uh, these dualistic terms of what's good for me and not good for me, attention flows out more. Oh, suddenly, gee, the trees are beautiful this time of year. The fall colors. Oh, somebody's in pain, they're suffering. Oh, there's compassion arises. Not how is this going to affect me? Once attention is turned let, uh, let uh, loose from this me, me, I, mine, it naturally flows out. It sees how people are. It recognizes their pain, their suffering. Why? Because ultimately we're all the same. We know perfectly well other people's pain and suffering. We just don't pay any attention to it. So attention naturally flows out this way. And you begin to experience the other flip side of the whole spiritual path. And by the way, you might start experiencing this a lot earlier than I've indicated here. It varies with different people. But now you start to actually get a taste of this divine reality that underlies everything. And you see that, oh, this is actually quite beautiful. Yeah. Oh, this is real happiness. This is a different kind of happiness than the thrill of having the hot fudge Sunday. And in the beginning, it will come and go. You won't just always be in bliss all the time. But it has a different quality. It's not a happiness that arises from possessing some phenomena. It has this more of this spontaneous quality, this quality of grace, as it's often put. A free gift. It's free. It's there. It's under everything. This beauty. It's not something you have to go earn or attain or work for or deserve or, uh, it's just there. If you just relax, let attention relax, let attention flow away from yourself and just into how things are. When this happens on a spiritual path, there's uh, usually for most people when this begins to happen, it's a big turnaround. Because the spiritual path is no longer so much about disciplines and practices and this and making commitments and all that. Because now what happens is attention wants to go there, attention is attracted. And you begin to feel whatever is left of this uh, conditioned pattern of response as a big burden. You begin to feel the self is not some precious thing you have to hang on to and protect, but now you're looking for how do I get rid of it? Completely. Not because you should, because you'll be a good boy or girl if you do. It's because your own experience is telling you that happiness, that abiding true happiness that we've all intuited always from the beginning is there. It's just right here, actually. Not even over there. Just waiting to be discovered. Waiting to be mined. A lot of the metaphors in the various traditions are about Removing obstacles, removing impediments. Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, talks about uh, the the, um, the Christ as a well, a spring that uh, as naturally flows like an artesian well, but it's been dammed up with mud and dirt. And so the spiritual path is simply about removing that so it can flow. Al Ghazali, Islamic mystic, talks the same way in terms of a well that's been uh, a rock well was caved in, so we have to dig out the the debris. Same metaphors pop up in tradition after tradition. So now uh, the whole spiritual path is turned around. And this is where the other meaning and more profound meaning of surrender is just simply surrendering into that. Surrendering into what's happening. Not what you're making happening, but what is starting to happen spontaneously or through grace around you. And this is this whole meaning of this teaching of God's will be done, not my will be done. And this teaching in all the, all the traditions except for Buddhism, you'll find this teaching. <clears throat> you have some idea of uh, uh, this, this fundamental consciousness is, during the course of the spiritual path, is, starts to be experienced as something objective in a certain sense. It's not let, yet recognized as you, as me. But it's certainly there. It's it's palatable. It's a presence. It's no longer something you're just reading about in books. It's something you're actually tasting, as the Sufis like to say. And tasting more than tasting drinking. The more uh, bits of conditioning you uncover, the more you practice attachment from them. And the more they fall away, the more you experience this. But then what happens? There's still a problem. Unfortunately. <laughs> Attention is now no longer caught up with regular phenomena that are arising. They they just don't seem nearly as important once you've experienced this. Hot fight Sundays are still good. I still like Hot Fight Sundays, but I tell you, they don't compare to God. God tastes infinitely better than any Hot Fight Sunday ever invented. I mean that seriously. Wherever you turn, there's such beauty and so forth. Why get so concerned about a hot fudge sundae? If it happens to be on your route. by all means, stop in. Prince Buckler's has good ones, by the way. <laughs> but attention now is, is eagerly, anxiously, yearningly seeking for this consciousness. No longer distracted by all these mundane phenomena and so forth. And it's looking everywhere. And it still can't find it. And they can't find it because this is something Teresa brought up in the beginning. That's because she's way down on the path. And she's observed all this through paying attention, committing to practices, practicing detachment, surrender. Because if we go back to our initial analogy of uh, attention being like a flashlight, it's like going to a cave and you're looking around to find the source of the light. And you take that flashlight and look all over the cave, you'll see all sorts of interesting things about the cave, but you don't see where the light is coming from. Or attention flowing up like a wave out of awareness, and it's moving around, but it's looking for awareness itself, consciousness. It's a, a wave of consciousness looking for consciousness. In the Zen Buddhist tradition, they often say it's like an eye trying to see itself. Consciousness, awareness, God can never appear as an object within consciousness. This is why Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic, said, you know, he said, some people think they're going to see God over there and I'm over here. This isn't so. God and I, we are one. This is what he means. You cannot ever see God. You cannot ever uh, experience God as an object. You can experience reflections, symbols of God as objects. So what happens? So then you begin to realize it's this attention's moving around, this attention is seeking something. And as long as it's moving around seeking, of course, it doesn't know what it is. And the trick is to surrender the seeking. Let attention stop seeking for anything in fact it's always already been here it's just in this in this case the wave and the ocean is a very uh, appropriate analogy the wave is seeking for the ocean but the wave is the ocean and as long as it's moving out moving away it's, it doesn't recognize what it is what's going on so when the seeking ends the wave just subsides and oh it's ocean that's all it was To begin with, attention was nothing but ocean. It was nothing but awareness. It was nothing but consciousness. But the trouble is, you can't do this voluntarily. When the seeker seeks, uh, tries to give up seeking, it's like seeking to give up seeking. You're seeking to give up seeking. Or other ways to say that, you know, making an effort to give up effort. So I'm going to be effortless now. So how how do I become effortless? Well, let's see. I'll make a big effort to become effortless. It's a it's a funny little uh, paradox right at the end of the path here. It has to do with, it's not a true paradox, it has to do with we still think there's a division between subject and object. That there's something to get, some subject and some object to get, and so forth. In truth, the paradox uh, vanishes with realization although it still can, has to be expressed in paradox because our language is, has duality built into it. But this is why, for instance, in the Buddhist tradition, they say enlightenment is nothing that can be created by human hands. It always happens spontaneously. And in the other traditions, they say it comes by grace, the grace of God, the grace of the guru, the grace of the avatar, or whatever. It's an indication, not that there's somebody up there zapping you with grace, But it's something that happens that transcends this division between I and other, self and world, servant and God, or whatever. It can't come from just one side. It's something that happens, and then that very division goes poof, or it's realized to be imaginary, nothing. So what can you do if you find yourself in this situation? Well, the truth is, you just have to keep on seeking that's what you're doing, and keep on surrendering, and you keep on seeking and you keep on surrendering until you get to the point and everybody will somewhere someday where there is nothing left, there is nothing left to seek, there is nothing left to surrender, there is nothing left for attention to do, and then attention quits it can't it has nothing to do it just like the wave collapses back into consciousness, and then there's one other thing that's important. So I said, it has to be there long enough for this realization to happen. The, the Tibetans have a lovely way, I think, of saying it. They say it's like the sun-clear light and the mother-clear light mutually recognizing each other. And the idea is the sun-clear light is like attention, this attention that's been looking, and the mother-clear light is like this ocean. And when, when they come together, when the, when the attention and the consciousness are, are seen to be one, it's a mutual recognition. Mother and son recognize each other. The way a mother and son will recognize each other instantly. And then, when attention moves again, which it certainly will, you know, this is all God's leela. I mean, God doesn't want to be just a flat ocean forever. God loves all these waves and displays and so forth. When it starts moving again, then you know what it is moving. Oh, that is attention. That is consciousness moving. And as it moves, and, and truly you see that actually it's not moving towards phenomena, that the attention is the phenomena. And the whole process of thinking and so forth creates these phenomena in the sense that it distinguishes, oh, this from that, and this from that, and labels them and calls them, and this is all part of the game, nothing wrong with this. This is what attention uh, does. This is what consciousness does for a living. This is how consciousness entertains itself. God is a, is a great artist. And she just loves to dance. Dance any kind of dance you want. And never, never does the same dance twice. And God has infinite possibilities for dancing. So the dance will never end. And that's what it is. That's what's going on. So... You see how we started with a simple little uh, exercise of trying to pay attention to consciousness, to our true nature, and uh, really the whole path unfolded. And the whole path hinges on these principles that come right out of each other. You start to pay attention. You find it isn't so easy. That takes a commitment to do that. And then there are practices to help you, like meditation and keeping precepts and so forth. And so uh, you have a commitment to those things. And even though if you can't pay attention to that naked awareness, you start to pay attention to what is around, what the phenomena are, how you respond to them, your whole process of conditioning. And through that, you naturally you begin to see, well, this is suffering, this is slavery. I don't want to be a robot, I don't want to be a programmed computer. That naturally brings about detachment and letting things go. And that is surrender. And the more you do that, as I say, the more then... The true nature thing starts to uh, burst through. And then surrender becomes uh, the, the the principle that governs everything at that point. Wherever you find yourself, it's surrender, surrender. So there's no big mystery about that. There's only this one little mystery. How do you stop the seeking? How do you seek to not seek? So that's the talk for the morning. Any uh, questions or comments or... <laughs> Yes.
0: So if you were to try to go on this path to attain this um, ultimate consciousness, and before going on that path you've had previous experiences in your life that were kind of effortless, where you had kind of a flash, a moment of this true consciousness, or five minutes of it, or whatever, and you can remember that experience, how does the memory of that
1: experience help you as you kind of go through this path? Is there some way to incorporate that into the... uh, It has a, uh, actually, like almost everything on a spiritual path, it's a double-edged sword. There's a very, very positive thing about that, and it means you've had your own taste. So now you have the confidence, you know what's possible. It's no longer uh, just reading from books. So that's like taking the teachings to heart. You take the teachings to heart, and you start to have your own experience. So that is extremely important. But the danger is, you start hanging on to the memory And you start trying to get back to some place. And actually, this is right here and now. And when attention starts to uh, focus on the memory of an experience like that and keeps trying to get back in the past, you see attention's distracted from the present. Mm -hmm. So you want to uh, learn from the experience in the sense of your confidence, but you don't want attention to, to constantly dwell on the memory. So you might use that memory sometimes to remind yourself sometimes if you're, I don't know, uh, feeling discouraged or or having lots of doubt, you know, about, well, is this really possible? And say, no, I really I, I experienced something myself. You know, trust your own experience, but don't try to get back someplace. That's that's can become a big hang up. Yes.
0: One of the things that I seek after, based on descriptions, are experiences of light. Of light. Of light. And over and over again, I read of the great rays, filaments, uh, Castaneda talking about the body as a luminous egg. Uh, descriptions that once we see clearly, that we can't go back to the way we saw before, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I have kind of a fascination and a seeking mind about what is all this light phenomenon about and when does that pop up or is that universal or, because it sounds like it'd be pretty cool to walk around and see this big world of filaments or something.
1: Uh, I think that too, again, it's it's confusing a little bit because that is true that uh, people, uh, especially when they get deep into a concentration practice, can experience internal lights like that. And uh, the qualities of light actually that you experience physical light can uh, start to change uh, as your attention really f- focuses on how things actually appear. They get very vivid and bright, and the colors get very rich, and things like that can happen. That's a sign that a practice, particularly meditation practice, is deepening. But again, that's a danger because if you get uh, if you get fascinated by these sorts of phenomena and you start practicing in order to get the phenomena, again, it's, your attention is being taken away from the truth. And the ultimate uh, use of light in mystical literature, and all mystical literature, as in enlightenment, is not physical light. It's just an analogy. What's this light? Awareness has this quality of like light, light. It's 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 intangible, but it's it's bright, it's vivid, it's clear. This is why the Tibetans call it the clear light. They mean it's not any. There's no substance in the light. It's just the very clarity of awareness of consciousness itself. So don't be uh, fooled by um, using metaphors like that uh, into thinking that there's you know going necessarily going to be any big physical light change or even internal lights. So it's not a question of. Um, Of extraordinary phenomena, although extraordinary phenomena will happen to you in the course of a path, but don't get distracted by them. I'll tell you one thing that maybe is helpful to remember in a technical, uh, more technically put, my teacher, Dr. Wolf, used to say, uh, enlightenment, or recognition as he calls it, is not about the change of the contents in consciousness. No content has to change whatsoever. It's simply about recognizing the true nature of the contents that are present right now. So right now is enlightened the mind. Whether you're seeing any sort of extraordinary lights or not, this is it, you see, right now. It is true that we practice and in certain states where there's less distraction arising, it's easier to have this realization. But there's nothing fundamentally preferable about one state of consciousness over another. It's only in relationship to uh, the you know the probability that you might have a realization in a particular state but there's no real reason ultimately why you can't have that realization this instant this is it this is it right now this is it there's something we are overlooking if we don't see it there's something we are ignoring about this right now
0: Would you say then that any phenomenon can be a metaphor for the underlying reality and then focusing on the phenomenon can uh, mislead us from the underlying reality because anything could be?
1: This is true. We use words and every word that we try to use to describe true nature is going to be a metaphor of some sort. It's going to fall short. And so particularly the more concrete ones can be dangerous that way in the sense that uh, people mistake you know the the metaphor for a reality or a you know a literal description. This is one of the problems I think uh why uh all traditions, as far as I can tell started were started by mystics come come from a mystical realization going all the way back to shamanic times and what happens is mystics try to teach and they use words. And they use words in a metaphorical way, which to their immediate students is quite obvious, this is what's going on. But over time, when the realization is lost, the words then become uh, ossified into ultimate truths themselves. And I once saw um, Jimmy Swagger on TV. He's this, well, now uh, defrocked evangelist <laughs> Uh But he was pretty good, actually. He would get up there and parade around the stage with his microphone, and he'd be sweating and talking about the Holy Ghost. And I saw him once, and he was talking about uh, the problem with Christian meetings is we don't give the Holy Ghost the gavel. We want to run the meeting, but we have to give the Holy Ghost the gavel. Let the Holy Ghost run the meeting, you know? And now it's clear to everybody there's no actual gavel, And the Holy Ghost doesn't have a gavel, you know what I mean? But you can see 500 years from now, walking to some Jimmy Swagger church, and there's the Holy Ghost depicted with a gavel in its hand, and theologians discussing what kind of gavel is this, corporal gavel, or, you know. Where the immediate thing is just obvious to people. But I think you're right. We always have to remember that this realization ultimately cannot be put into words. It's beyond concepts, it's beyond thoughts, beyond images, beyond anything like that. And so when we focus and fixate on any particular image or teaching, and that starts to distract us uh, from actually paying attention to the reality, uh, then we want to be careful. We (coughs) want to let go of that, surrender that. Sometimes the teachings are so beautiful. You know, just reading the teachings, thinking about the teachings brings... Uh, it gives you a, a glimpse, a reflected glimpse, but ultimately you have to even let go of that. Be willing to not know anything, as Lao Tzu says. Total unknowing. Intellectual conception.
0: You said the four principles govern the spiritual path. I just wonder what you meant by govern.
1: If you can think of a better choice of words, I'm open to it. Uh, they govern in, in the sense that you can use them to remember what what's going on at any point. If you're, for instance, let's say you're in the middle of an argument with somebody, your wife, right? And then teachings like this are useful if you can remember, oh, pay attention now. So you start to watch. You're still arguing, you know what I mean? But you start to become mindful of what's going on here, right? And then she says something that really, you know, really puts the screw in there. And they say, no, I have to be committed to pay attention. You can still respond, but you want to maintain that commitment to pay attention, you know, maybe, uh, then you, you can remember, okay, practice detachment. What does detachment mean here? And you, you might first be saying, I'm, I'm not going to respond at all. And say, That's not really detachment. But then she says something again, something really insulting that uh, that would automatically have said, all right, you know, <laughs> to the moon, Alice's. <laughs> those of you who are old enough to remember that. <laughs> but you let that go, and you let that go, and you surrender any programmed response. And then actually, that's when that moment of freedom opens up, that moment of spontaneity, you know. And you might say something... Uh, I don't know, humorous or I, it's not a question of another program. It's just it's no longer conditioned. That's the point So if you remember these four principles, they can help you govern your practice by just using them as oh a reminder Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: well, you, you probably talked about this, but I just want to ask about, um about will um and attention kind of being the same. But, um, well, you know, desire arises and, and will kind of... It, it's kind of like will and uh, attention being the same because will is kind of what is following that uh, desire. So, I I did ask, <laughs> well, no, you're right,
1: this is a big problem in our language, and I don't know if there's any language that well, probably languages that have better, more precise terms for these things, but I think at some point they'll all break down because they really are currents in consciousness rather than specific things. But I would say if you it's maybe helpful to think of uh, will as something close to intention, so attention sometimes uh, our attention is captured by phenomena against our will, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Or we find this out in just trying to meditate. You, know, you want to keep your focus on your breath, and that's where your will is, at least you know, for part of the time. But you, you can't just will your attention to stay there. Your attention runs off, and you have to bring it back. And, and so, um, But your intention is to keep the, the focus on the breath. So I think, really, if we wanted to talk about where will fits into this, it would be more like our intention. But, again, in the ultimate sense, you're right. The will is not something different from the movement of, initially, of awareness and consciousness, and then expressed out through seemingly physical actions. And one of our problems is when we make this division fundamental division in the world between I and other, self and world, and so forth, we divide up this movement and we call whatever is generated out of us my will. And then the rest of the world either has, it's all God's will or it's all individual wills or, you know, people have different ideas about that. And then there seems to be a conflict because of this imaginary line that we we fixated on. When that line is seen to be imaginary, then there is only one will in the world. And all these theological problems like, well, if God wills everything, the human beings don't have free will and so forth. They all are based on this false premise that there are two wills. There aren't two wills. There's only one will, and that will is absolutely free.
0: So there is only will, in a sense. There's Yes. Um, you can't even name it as God's will or my will.
1: Yes, that's a way of talking about it in, in you know... The Abrahamic traditions, it's a good way to talk about God's will. It's useful on the course of a path as a device for helping you practice a detachment and surrender. But ultimately speaking, it's not like God has a separate will out there and you have a separate will in here. But it is helpful, just like Therese was talking about, it's a helpful metaphor for the purpose of a practice. So you can, you can look at everything as arising by God's will. And whenever you find yourself in conflict with it, you can say, well, if my true in- intention is let God's will be done, not my will, that helps you let go and surrender. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a practice device rather than a theological statement about the ultimate nature of reality. Well, if there are no more questions or comments, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. And until we meet again, peace to you all.